35 seconds. <laughs> to get it on. Stop with the fellowship. <laughs> Stop speaking to people. Get in here. <laughs> Good. Take your Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This morning, chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful morning. Thank you for the day. Thank you for your presence in our lives and among us as the body of Christ. Unique blessing that is ours as we gather together as your people in your name for your glory. And doing that in a unique way for which uh, we have been created. And that is to worship you. And we want our lives to reflect our worship of you. But as we gather as the church and we come under the word and we sing the word and we hear the word and we pray the word, we, we worship you and you alone are God. We thank you that you hear us. You hear, our, you, you hear the petitions of our hearts right now. You, you know everything about us. You know what we're going to think before we think it. You're so great. And you're so worthy of that praise. And part of our loving you with all of our heart is loving you with our minds. And so grant us grace in our minds, thinking, understanding um, truth today in a way that it becomes part of our life, live to your glory. Thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes. And we pray these things in Christ, our Savior's name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Okay. Want to ask you a question in getting started this morning? Okay. I want you to answer the question based upon where we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's discussion of what he sees of life under the sun if you were to describe it in a word other than vanity, right? Other than vanity, what word would you put in there as life is perceived, lived, viewed without God in the world? Now, you could probably go back and glance a bit, come under a, come, a look at some of the passages and come up with a word, but I want to hear your word. Well, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> But I want you to think about it. If you had to put, put a word in there, maybe two, but probably one, what would you describe that Solomon is reminding us of what life is like in this world lived without God? What would be your word? What would be your word? Well, let me come to a quote that might help us, and perhaps one of the words that are mentioned in this quote would refer to that. 
I could mention some others because Solomon has used more than one term. But here's a great uh, quote by John Phillips just reviewing Proverbs, uh, uh, reviewing Ecclesiastes itself and the theme. And he says this, Solomon proves from experience, observation, and deduction that a life lived without God is, there's three words, possibility, right? It's, say those three words, it's futile, right? It's, and it's pointless. Synonym for pointless, you might have said meaningless, right? Nothing ever lasts. We become bored with our work. Pleasures don't ultimately satisfy. Philosophy raises more question than answers. Disappointment comes. This is life under the sun. Death appears on the horizon. He's always coming to this, bringing this into the reality of you can't escape this coming reality in terms of preparing us for it. All these somber threats are woven into the tapestry of this preacher's sermon. Gloom and doom lurk everywhere. Nothing under the sun satisfies the deepest longings of the human heart. Remember chapter 3, glance back there with me. Verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has set what? There it is. There it is. The reality of bearing God's image no matter who you are, no matter your relationship, it's the reality of that. And maybe you said uh, life is hard. Maybe you said that. Did you think about that? Maybe you said perplexing or temporal or painful or unfair at times or unpleasant. You might have said the word folly, empty. That's one of the words I think we just read, pointless and so forth. Without realizing that when we get above the sun, above the sun, We gain meaning and we gain purpose and we find our meaning and our purpose in our creator, in knowing him and knowing how we were created for him. And so in our knowledge of God, we have, here's my key word, we have hope. We have hope in the midst of whatever God is bringing into our lives. Our hope is anchored in him and in his promises. Can you just say amen to that? That makes life completely viewed differently. And so we know we have everything gets back to, please listen to me right now, everything gets back to your theology. What do you really believe about God? What do we know about God? What are we learning about God? Are we anchored in him and the knowledge of him and his character And so then we live life realizing every benefit in life comes ultimately from him. And as we saw in chapter 2, life is a gift. It is a gift. Every day is a gift to be enjoyed. Even if you're stuck in the airport for four hours, it is still a gift. (laughs) It's a little my week. And it causes us then to realize and accept everything that he brings before us. Pain is never without purpose, and we live this temporal life with the hope of a glory to come and what God has prepared for us. Therefore, if you are a Christian today, if you are saved, if you are a believer, then as a Christian living and aware of what life is like for people without God, 
you and I then are to be prepared to give them the hope that we have in him. Made me think about that uh, passage in 1 Peter where Peter tells us, by the way, we're not going to go there because I'm not even to chapter 4 yet, but that passage, never forget, is in the context of slander and suffering for being a Christian. And in the midst of whatever God brings into our lives, the context there, chapter 3, is being slandered and suffering for being a Christian. And at the same time, the Word of God says, we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the what? For our hope. For our hope. And so that means that we are anchored in and we are competent in and we are prepared in giving people hope through the gospel, through what God has done to allow us as sinners to be made right with God and see life as God would intend for us to view it as coming from him and his goodness. Now, Solomon is still looking around and he's still evaluating life under the sun. Chapter 4, notice how it begins. Then I looked, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1, Ecclesiastes. Verse 1, you see that? I looked again. Here's something he saw down in verse 4. Then I have seen, verse 7, I looked again. So he's doing this investigation and observation of the reality of life lived, isn't he? And he, he, he takes us to some particular categories as he's doing that. And in my reading and study, I couldn't come up with a better way to summarize chapter 4 and following, really, in chapter 5. Better way to summarize it than the introduction in my Ryrie study Bible where he uh, gives us this particular title, The Futility of Various Circumstances of Life. He's going to look at various things going on, various circumstances in life under the sun, and he's going to comment on those by observation. And the best that I could is to then qualify that is that he gives us categories of this. And so I'm going to give you my outline, and then we'll go through it, okay? The first thing that he does is he discusses the evil of human oppression in this world. This is a hard one. He discusses by observation the evil of human oppression. Now, see, some things he understands, other things he doesn't necessarily. Some things he likes and some things he doesn't like, but he just gives it to us as what he sees. So in verses 1 through 3, he's going to talk about human oppression, where uh, people oppress others. Um, In verses 4 through 8, he talks about vanity relating to work. Now, don't miss the point. Work is good. It's a gift from God. But it's going to talk about vanity as it relates to that in human relationships and behavior. Then in verses, uh, verses 9 through 12, he talks about relationships. Some would call this section about friendships. But the point is that he's making there, and these verses we'll see, is the security that we have in life and safety that is ours in, in re- people in our lives in relationships. This is the section that is also referred to along with as a time for everything. This often is read with reference to a wedding, marriage, 
But that's not the main point, but it can apply there. Okay, and then in the last section, Lord willing, we'll get there, he talks about rulers and the crowd, fickle followers, in verses 13 through 16. So, um, if you don't follow me in anything else, at least you have an outline of the text, okay? There we go. That was kind of a little bit of a joke there. Okay. Well, one through three. One through three. Here we go. The evil of human oppression. And this is hard. There's no joke here. This is hard. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them, and on the side of the oppressors was power. But they had no one to comfort them or comfort. So I congratulated the dead who had already who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Wow. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Wow. His observations concerning the reality of of oppression in this world. Back up to chapter 3, verse 16. Turn there with me. Remember? He said, I have seen under the sun, 316, under the sun, that in the place of justice there is what? Wickedness and evil. Now look over in chapter 5, verse 8, because he brings this up. And he's real about it because it's a real issue when we look at our world. Verse 8 of chapter 5, yes. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and Righteousness and the providence. Do not be shocked at the sight. One official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. All the levels of authority, and likewise the level of corruption and the level of oppression that people would experience. So the reality of wickedness in our fallen world relating to how people oppress other people. One writer says, since the fall, every page of human history is soaked with tears and stained with blood. Whether you talk about individuals, whether you talk about um, powers that be, um, in terms of, uh, of, of peoples, people groups, you know, the Bible, Assyrians, their oppression of people, what it was like, whatever else. Um, well, Garrett makes a helpful comment here, I believe, if I can find my comment of it. Yes. He said, people do such cruel things to one another, and no one can stop it. No one can make the oppressed feel better or set things right. Solomon expresses much angst over this situation. The reason no one can comfort the oppressed is because power is on the side of the oppressors. And they can do as they please. Another quote, and then my added comments about, or examples about his statement here. Politics in this fallen world is meaningless. Now don't go to the extreme and say it doesn't matter. Be a good citizen, and right? Be a good citizen, but catch his Catch his point. 
the people elected to uphold justice, set things right, to set things right, pass laws, protect the hurting as the ones who ultimately end up doing their pressing. The problem is that power corrupts. So even if someone sees evil of the system and gets involved with a desire to reform things, and once he has power, he is then corrupted and nothing changes. In our political system, often people have to compromise their ideals in order to climb the ladder, and once they get to a position of influence, they no longer are the same persons anymore. Politicians, judges, the rich can oppress the poor and the outcast who have little. If any recourse, the powerful can do what they want to the weak, and no one can stand for the weak, whether it is an unborn child or a slave-traded little girl. And breaks our hearts, doesn't it? The reality of evil in our fallen world. And part of it causes us to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Come. But we understand that. We understand what happened in Genesis 3 to us and to our world. And Solomon is being realistic about it. And this is why people oftentimes lose hope. Lose hope. We're just going in cycles with that, aren't we? I remember my walk through the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And I still have memory photos in my mind from nearly 50 years ago when I walked through that thing. And if there's ever been an example of human depravity, but it's not the first and it's not the last, is it? What, 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 do, we, what do we do in light of this? Listen. Um, we come to our Bibles. We come to God. We come to the reality that the, 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 the ultimate solution in our world is changed hearts through the gospel. We come to the book of Job and we realize Job and all of Job's suffering that the book moves from why to who? To God. And in all we understand and all the evil that we see in a fallen world, nothing has changed about God. He remains good. He remains wise. He remains just in every way. And where we can't figure it all out, we trust him and in his infinite wisdom. Do we not? So I, uh, oh my, I was just thinking about examples of this and I came across this, uh, this gal I don't know if her name is pronounced Soon Okay Lee <laughs> or if it's Soon Ockley. I don't know how you pronounce her name, but uh, she, she has quite a testimony. And she um, was one of the few who escaped the uh, absolute uh, oppression, absolute oppression of people and, and Christians, if anywhere, in North Korea. And she was not a Christian when they um, put her in prison and began to torture her. And in the midst of that, she makes a statement, just quick, a statement about her. Um, I think she's still alive today, but I think we made reference to her book. I don't know if you can read it and uh, not hurt you, but she said, I saw something so unimaginable and so terrible 
that I had to let the world know. She is one of the rare human beings to survive and offer an eyewitness account of conditions inside North Korea's political prisons. And I wanted to mention her likewise because one of the things that uh, influenced her while she was suffering and being beaten and humiliated in so many ways um, is that she watched people who were Christians suffer, and they suffered differently than others. They suffered with joy and with hope. And that so impacted her life that she later becomes a Christian. She escapes to South Korea and then China. It's got a whole thing about her life. But human depravity, oh, what what an example. You can go and see The Sound of Freedom, that particular film that is fairly current about uh, child trafficking if you can stay and watch it all or get through it without crying. So human depravity and evil changes nothing about God. It simply reminds us that we live in a fallen world. And I like to come back to this from time to time for people because when we begin to question God and his wisdom and his righteousness and his justice. I, I, I like to come back to Genesis 18.25 and be sure that you would believe this. Remember, it's in the, in the context of uh, God going to deal with Sodom and all of the perversion and evil of Sodom. And in that conversation between uh, Abraham and God, uh, in 18.25, it reads, far be it from you. Here's what Abraham had to learn and know and respond to. Far it be, be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. And here's what I think is worth underlining in our minds. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer to that is, yes, he will. And when we think about wickedness, uh, by, by the way, you're going to see how this text correlates to the scripture reading today by divine providence in this church. Wait till you hear what I read for the scripture reading later on from the psalm that has everything to do with this particular text. God is good, God is right, and if we talk about the reality of wickedness, then we're reminded of the condition that you and I came into this world, and if we would have just received justice, we'd be in hell already, amen? But we have received mercy and we receive grace. Okay, the evil of human oppression, he sees this, the reality of this, of life under the sun. And yet in verses 2 and 3, he concludes that non-existent would seem to be preferable because of the, the the, the, the sorrow and the heartache associated with the suffering of the oppressed. 4 through 8, now he switches subjects, still talking about what he sees, down in verses 4 through verse 8. And again, I have seen that, and I'm going to read these verses and then kind of go through these um, point at a time. And here we are, the vanity about work and people in the world. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry uh, between a man and his neighbor. This, too, is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand 
full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Some truisms that he's giving us here, kind of like Proverbs almost. Verse 7, then I looked again at vanity under the sun, and there was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And my Bible inserts here for our understanding. He never asked or was not satisfied with riches. And for whom, he would, for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? Then if I have no one, no descendant, no brother, no, what, what, what am I passing on? What, what's the point of all of this? We've seen that before. And so he says again at the end of verse 8, this too is vanity and is a grievous task. So in verse 4, he starts with, I have seen every labor and every skill which is done, rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Now that word there translated rivalry is not the best translation. The Hebrew word conveys the idea of jealousy or envy. He's not talking about fair competition there. He's talking about what happens among people in their labor. The theological workbook of the Old Testament, which is a key one concerning my understanding of Hebrew words, he says the term denotes hostility and disruptive passion toward another. So the point he makes is this, in this text, one man envies another, determining his neighbor has it better than him. It's not competition, it's the jealousy that, cause is, that comes from someone doing better and having more. And he says, here I see this going on. Here's somebody that's got it good, but you see somebody else got it better, got more, and here he is, there's striving going on among that. Why are people like that? Why can't they be content, right? <laughs> then he says in verse 5, the fool holds his hands and consumes his own flesh. In other words, he, he, he's not going to do any work, but he ends up consuming his own flesh metaphorically. The idea is he, 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 just, he, he ends up with nothing and, 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 and uh, in poverty. And even the lazy fool, someone has said, who lives off others is never satisfied. In other words, though he's getting a free ride, he wants more. And as he gets more, think about this in our world today, as he gets more, he's still not satisfied with it because he never experiences the satisfaction of accomplishing something. See, work is for our good. Everybody say amen to that? It's a good thing. Teach our children the value of work, how to be good work, especially our young men, how to be good workers as as providers. It's a good thing. But there's also the satisfaction that comes with, for all of us, of accomplishing things. And the fool never gets there, though he's taken care of, though he gets more and more and more. Is that not relevant to our day today? Then notice in verse 6, he gives us a balanced approach, if we can see it that way. One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. So here we've got rest or contentment along with the balance of work and the benefit of it. Okay, so 
Wearsby so good for me. The industrious man thinks that money will bring him peace, but he has no time to enjoy it. The idle man thinks that doing nothing will bring him peace, but his lifestyle only destroys him. The integrated man or balanced man enjoys both his labor and the fruit of his labor and balances toil with rest. I wonder if God had something in mind there when on the seventh day he set a pattern for us to what? To rest. Yeah. Hmm. Um, Yeah, here's another helpful quote by Dave Gibson. Doug Gibson. When we realize there is a middle way between being lazy in the here and now and busting a gut for the future, we find tranquility. We realize that rest and peace are more important than wealth and success. We look down and we find that only one hand is full, but we know that it is more than enough. The Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs suggested that we learn to find contentment by way of subtraction rather than addition. People normally think that to achieve contentment, you have to attain whatever it is you desire. Our possessions need to be raised up to the level of our desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions. G.K. Chesterton said, is reported to have said exactly the same thing. There are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And whenever you see that I can do all things, right, through Christ who strengthens me, it's not catching the, the pass, right, and it's not uh, conquering the world. It's, it's in the context of what? Contentment, being content, being content. I'm thankful Paul also said that he'd learned contentment because I'm still learning that. How about you? Amen? That he learned it, but he learned how to go with more and with less and just being satisfied with all God had given to him. That message is as much for me as, as anybody else here in the room. But he doesn't stop there, okay? He's still in this theme of what he's observing about work and about labor and about people. He says, verse 7, Then I looked, at vanity, I looked again at vanity under the sun, There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Why? Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. And for whom am I laboring then and depriving myself of pleasure? What's what's one of this? This too is vanity, is a grievous task. I just read that, didn't I? One more. A man works hard to make a pile and doesn't stop to ask a very basic question. Why am I doing this? He makes a stack of money, but no one to share it with. He can't afford to marry or have children because they would take him away from his work. He can't afford to have friends because all their motives would be suspect. <laughs> this is a sad affair, is it not? Look at this. He could, he could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. Well, that's all right, because he doesn't want to sit with them either. <laughs> but companionship is dear, and he's going to move to that topic. God created us for friendship, 
and a curse resides in all things which prevent men from forming friendships. One of the great culprits of this affair is the task of making big-time money. And I think it's good at this, at this moment then to just turn over to uh, 1 Timothy. Yeah, 1 Timothy. Because we're talking in 1 Timothy about contentment, but we're also talking in 1 Timothy about the trap that we get into when we always seek to want more. Easy trap, is it not? 1 Timothy 6, right? 1 Timothy 6, and a theme that we keep coming back to, and you've been assigned this verse. Mark 8, 36. Remember being assigned that? If you don't have it for next week, there's a penalty. Pastor James will figure out what the penalty is, but there'll be a penalty. What? Because you know this verse. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and what? Lose his soul. There it is. Amen? There it is. 1 Timothy 6, Mark 8, 36, next week. What will be the penalty, Pastor? Huh? Oh, you've got to think about it. Okay. Please make it severe. 1 Timothy 6, here it is. But godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by, everybody say it, contentment. Verse 7, 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Oh, boy. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So you, Timothy, you flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness and fight the good fight and so forth. What a relevant passage it is um, for all of us. So a man who had no one, had no one in terms of a descendant or relative, and yet at the same time, never had enough and the grief that would cause him and Solomon says this too is vanity this too is vanity a warning for us and then in verses 9 through 12 how are we doing oh we got time we have the safety and and security of of relationships as I've labeled it now he comes to a different topic about people people in your life, verses 9 through 12. Like I said, often quoted in, in a wedding uh, with people and companionship, and that's all right, and that's all good, but that's not the main point. Well, what is it? Let's read 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one who, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. By the way, this becomes much more relative, uh, relative to us when we qualify for Social Security and above. Amen? One falls and another brings him up. Um, 
Verse 11, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warmed alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Someone wrote, Solomon is observing the importance of friendships and the value of people doing things together. The value of people doing things together. That seems obvious, doesn't it? Also, the danger of living, key, and traveling in the ancient world alone. One man quoted a Jewish proverb, not a proverb from Proverbs, but a traditional one among Jewish uh, history or tradition. Quote, a friendless man is like a left hand bereft of the right. Well, it's certainly obvious in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Two good workers will certainly get more done than one when they work together. That's a given. That's obvious. Amen? Can I use a farm analogy? Farm analogy? My, uh, my uncle, my gra- my grandpa had the farm. My uncle was his, his son, and my uncle joined the guard and was gone for a summer. Summer, I'd be out of school, and Grandpa said, you are going to be my hired hand. That sounded really good. Um, and then I was reminded that Grandpa milks cows morning and evening every day, and you can't put them in the closet for a weekend. It's nonstop, 24-7. So he would have me bring him in. He'd get him into the barn. He had a couple of, of, of groups that he would put in the stanchions and put on the milkers, and I was to grain the cattle. I was to help him lift the milk into the can, from the cans into the milk house. I was to take care of the calves, water the calves, feed the calves, bring some hay down from the mow for next. And he's doing one, I'm doing one, and we're pulling that thing off together, and I'm learning about real work all that summer. But Grandpa's telling me all the time, it sure is great to have you here because I can sure get a lot more done, the two of us, than just alone. Imagine trying to bale hay all alone. (laughs) You know? Yeah. So it's just true in life, isn't it? It's true in in life, a fact of life. And then people, it also relates, of course, yes, people in your life. But then notice verse... uh, Verse 10, if either of them falls, the one who lifts up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another, lift him up. And think about that. And think about that with reference to traveling. And I really think that Wiersbe's um, got the context well for us here. Two are better when it comes to walking. Roads and paths in Palestine were not paved or even leveled, and there were many hidden rocks in the fields. It was not uncommon for even the most experienced traveler to stumble and fall, perhaps break a bone or even fall into a hidden pit. How wonderful to have a friend who can help you up or out. But if this applies to our physical falls, how much more does it apply to times when we stumble in our spiritual walk and need restoration? Galatians 6, what a great passage. How grateful we should be for Christian friends who help us walk straight. Love us enough to help us walk straight. How grateful we should be for the church, the body of Christ, for so many reasons. 
so many reasons and all the one another's and all the care and all the help that we bring to one another as being united to one another and being in Christ together as well. Then in verse 12, and if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him and a cord of three stands is not three strands or three is not quickly torn apart. You know what I thought about as I was reading this, just reflecting upon it, I thought about the fact of Paul and all of his journeys. He usually had a team with him, didn't he? And I, I know that was training and I know that was work of the gospel, but I imagine it was safety likewise um, in his, all of his travels and all that he experienced for the for the sake of the gospel. So he's just by observation, he's noting this as a true as truism in, in our world. And certainly, yes, certainly, the emphasis here by so many is, if you have people in your life, be thankful for them. Be a blessing to others. I, that old hymn, Make Me a Blessing, you know the chorus, Make Me a Blessing to Someone When? Today right? And you come that way uh, this morning to be encouragement and blessing to others. We're to die every day. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Amen? So we're here for each other. We're here for the lost. We're here for each other. We have people in our lives. The church provides this. We are reminded. We are reminded continually. We are not wolves. We are what? We are sheep. And sheep need other sheep. And more than other sheep, they need a, they need a shepherd. Amen. So praise God for the body of Christ. Praise God for people in your life. And if you don't have friends, then be a friend. Be friendly. Be a friend to others. Look for ways to be a blessing and serve others. To be a friend likewise to them. Just let me remind you of that in light of the fact of the blessing and benefit of having other people in our lives. Then verse 13 through verse 16, I really wonder here, I'm going to have to get to heaven to find out, but I w probably won't remember the question. But I really remember in verses 13, I think about 13 through 16, I wonder who Solomon is thinking about when he's writing this. Well, let me read it, what I'm talking about here. And here we're talking about rulers and fickle followers, at least I would call it that, and I think you'll see it from the text. Let me read it, 13 through 16, for us. A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. By the way, I wonder if he's even thinking about himself. Think about that. For he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. Now many people make reference here to maybe, maybe he's talking about Daniel didn't become king, you know, but his circumstances are David. David and his as the youth and shepherd boy and becomes king, but we're not told that. But he's referring to somebody. Here he is. He's come out of prison to become king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. Joseph, whoever. 15, I have seen all the living under the sun throng to the side of the second lad who replaces him. There is no end to all the people, to all who were before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him. For this too is vanity and striving after win. Here's the new one that comes up. Everybody's yay, and then later on, where are they going? Can we get somebody else? <laughs> Doesn't that sound like reality? <laughs> reality of life. This paragraph, Derek Kidner is, 
such a helpful commentary. He says, this paragraph has its obscurities. Yeah, it does, because we don't know what he's talking about. But what he's saying is true. It portrays something familiar enough in public life, the short-lived popularity of the great. It shows the faults on both sides, beginning with the stubbornness of the man who has been too long in the saddle. I like that one. Who is out of touch and out of sympathy with the times, forgetting what it was like to be young, fiery, and hard, hard up and as he once was himself. There is enough likeness to the earlier and latter David for us to reflect that the finest of men can go this way and be the last to realize it. Now, why does he say that? Because God sent a prophet to David and said, he told the story, and David immediately could put his finger on the problem of what ought to be done to that man. And then what did the prophet say to King David? He said, what, you, you're the one. You're the one, David. Imagine that. You talk about a slam dunk. Wow. But the portrait is not designed to be historical, but rather in, in, in principle. And the higher up one goes in whatever aspect of life and the more authority one is given, the more potential pride is to rule. And uh, what's that old saying? If we, if we stop uh, listening, yet wise better than an old foolish king who no longer knows how to receive it. If we stop listening then we're not learning. And if we're not learning, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're in trouble. Is that good? Amen? So one more time. If we're not listening, we're not learning. If we're not learning, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're in trouble. I had the privilege to spend time with Pastor Good up there at Faith Church in Lafayette. Uh, Lord took him home some time ago. But I remember one of the things that he said that stuck with me, and that is this. He said, I want to go home to heaven still serving and still growing. Now, that's God's kind of man, amen? And woman, may that be so, may that be so of us. So here's the reality of human uh, fickleness, if we could say it that way. Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell, who took the British throne away from Charles I and established the Commonwealth, said to a friend, do not trust the cheering for those persons would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. Think about our Savior. Here he comes into Jerusalem. What do they, what do they say? The palm leaves, and they said what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here he is. A little while later, what are they saying? Crucify him crucify him. So Worsby puts it together. We'll end with this. When, we, when, we, when he looked within, he saw that man was made for eternity and God would make all things beautiful in their time. When he looked ahead, he saw the last enemy, death. Then he looked around and he understood that life is complex and difficult and not easy to explain. One thing is sure, no matter where you look, you see trials and problems and people who could use, use some encouragement, some help. Yes, yes to all of that. We would, we would agree. People need comfort, one through four. They need comfort. People need encouragement. People in verses 9 through 12, two is better than one. They need protection. But what do people need more than anything else? They need to know God, and they need to know how to be made right with him. They need the gospel. They need Christ. And we need to be, First Peter 3.18, ever ready to give our account of our hope to be able to help them 
to be made right with God and set for eternity with him rather than from him. Amen? Good chapter, huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Solomon cutting it straight again, burdening our heart for the world and for, uh, for the coming of our Savior and realizing where we came from as well. And the, yes, the hard things, the hard things, reality of a fallen world. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Oh, my. And a perfect king. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. Most of all, in being able to have our sin forgiven and to be able to have the very righteousness of your dear son, our Savior, that comes by faith and faith alone in him. Bless our hour now to come as we continue through the hearing of your word, uh, continue in our worship of you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.